0: I would like to just invite you to just take a deep breath, let yourself know that we have awakened this morning to the most beautiful environment that surrounds us, to look forward to a time that God has carved out in our lives to come together with beautiful friends and the hospitality that's extended, the opportunities that are extended, to come to this place, so how could we approach this without a feeling of deep gratitude? Knowing that within every person lies something that they're struggling with. So even with that deep gratitude, we know that there are some of you that are holding deep uh, concerns and deep needs right now as well. Let's go to God. We thank you, God, that you've heard our heart before our mouth can speak the words. We thank you that your spirit has abides within and is mixed in with our own thoughts and our own uh, uh, emotions. And all the things that make us being human is this sacred and holy presence that you have chosen to be a mixture in. And so, God, we lift this day up to you. It's yours. There will never be another day like this. There has never been one before. And this is the day that we have. We pray that it would be your spirit that would guide us to write well this day, to forgive deeply, to mend fences, to build bridges. And to experience you in ways that surprise us. And we pray, O oh God, that we might surprise you today as well. With our sense of openness. With our sense of uh, sharing. And curiosity. And all that you love so deeply about the humans you created. So illuminate our minds, O oh God. And we will do our best to keep ourselves wide open to the way your spirit speaks to us. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. You'll notice I'm going to use the uh, referring back to the notes a little bit at the very beginning. So you'll notice in the notes that I gave you, excuse me, um, that the, the writers that I have talked about before who are the source of the scriptures, Uh, the Yahwist, the Elohist, the Priestly, and then we have now the Redactors. And I'd like to just mention to you about redaction. Some people uh, mistakenly think that when we talk about redaction, we're talking about like military redaction or, you know, that kind of CIA redaction where you go through and you, you know, mark it out with a, a... black marker and get rid of information or change information, but that's not biblical redaction. And biblical redaction is a form of editing. And we know that this is how the Bible came to be in its form as it was transferred from oral tradition into a written form. And this took, you know, this took thousands of years to do. To, to go from the nomadic tribes who told the stories around the campfires, handed them down from generation to generation, to finally that became a story that represented a community and that community then uh, began to practice their uh, folklore and their stories that had been handed down. And so then the, the redactors and the these writers, the Yahwehists, the Elohist, the priestly, are the ones that the these writers took all of those oral traditions and we can identify them because, for example, the Yahwehist is one who always calls God Yahweh. The Elohist are the writer, that community of writers always call God Elohim. So we can see where the different strands come in, and then the priestly are, are are concerned with ritual and with numbers and with you know all of that and and that proves itself when you look at Leviticus. Who is the main contributor in Leviticus upon this chart? It's the priestly. They are concerned with the rules and the regulations and the rituals. And then we have the redactors, and the redactors are uh, it's a form of editing, like I said, which are. Uh, combined, it takes the text and they combine and they alter slightly to make a single document all of these stories. All of the oral traditions and all of these stories that have been handed down for generations, the redactor's attempt is then to take all of these, all this big bulk of material, of written, of unwritten material and to create some kind of cohesive story behind it so that it begins to be, uh, it's forged as a, um, a history, so to speak. But you can see it's not a historical history. It's a biblical history, but it's of all the stories of how things came to be and how things went from here to here. And so not only did they, did they have this uh, grand task of doing this, but they also felt that they could add commentary in the middle of that and so quite often we have them creating bridges from <clears throat> this story to this story and we have them adding a few commentaries into that as well. So we have added added extra material that may not have been in the original material but it doesn't matter because it is now the material that we use that has been inspired and that we use now uh, as our text. So, uh, it, so it's important to understand that this particular chapter is a very highly redacted chapter and that mean and and I'll speak more about that in a little bit but that means that for example the passover it, it, it has never is not coupled with exodus until 66 AD that's 30 years or more after Christ died. So that's when the final version of Exodus came into being. Now, isn't that amazing? And that is when they, the redactors took this Passover uh, ritual and fit it together with the plague story. And it became a piece of that plague story because the story was a, because the Passover is a ritual in which it redefined the people of God, the Israelite people, and we'll get to that. But I just wanna mention that in its context. So the redactors, they started their redaction around the fifth or sixth century. And this was, this particular story here, uh, you know, was the story, theme for it is about the 3rd century, 3rd or 4th century, but it wasn't redacted until the 6th century, and then it wasn't in its final version until 66 AD after um, uh, Caesar was uh, assassinated, and then there was a big Roman rebellion, and all of the rituals were thrown out, and then they had to reintroduce them, and that's when this version of Passover the version that we understand was brought into uh, uh, some kind of cohesion with them all right so saying all that um, that um, it, it's just interesting because with the redactions you can see that um, you can it's very obvious sometimes with the the sources and you'll say well that was kind of Abrupt, or that was kind of awkward, or where did that, how did that come to be that? And sometimes it's an easy bridge and sometimes it's a bumpy bridge. But what they're trying to do usually is take several stories and bring them together to make one story. But they're not really concerned with whether it's a smooth transition or not. They're not trying to hide the fact that there are many stories. They're just trying to simply make sense of them. So that's why, as I've said before, that's why we have two creation stories. That's why we had about four different versions of what happened to Joseph when Joseph was thrown into that pit, because it's from four different you know sources that are coming out. All right, so um, redactional processes are documented in numerous disciplines, but particularly in biblical discipline and in the Talmud and in in the biblical studies. So, all right, so let's start. We're going to do this in three sections. We're going to do 1 through 28, then 29 through 35, I think, and then 36 through 51, something like that. So we're going to do it in three sections. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. Oh, let me remind you about the numerology. Remember how important that numerology and, and dates and all of this. And what they're all trying to say is that complete and perfect day and time, and month, and when it all can be accomplished. Okay. This month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the 10th of this month, they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. Remember the number 10, right? If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat of it. Your lamb shall be without blemish a year old male, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. Then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the lamb that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it over the fire with its head, legs, and inner organs. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. This is how you shall eat it, your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it hurriedly. It is the Passover of the Lord. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt. Both human beings and animals. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the God. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a solemn assembly, and on the seventh day a solemn assembly. No work shall be done on those days. Only what everyone must eat, that alone may be prepared by you. You shall observe the festival of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your companies out of the land of Egypt. You shall observe this day throughout your generations as a perpetual ordinance. In the first month from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day, you shall eat unleavened bread. For seven days, no leaven shall be found in your houses. For whoever eats what is leavened shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether an alien or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened in all your settlements. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go, select lambs for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, And touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood in the basin. None of you shall go outside the doors of your house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike down the Egyptians when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts. The Lord will pass over that door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you down. You shall observe this rite as a perpetual ordinance for you and your children. When you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this observance. And when your children ask you, what do you mean by this observance? You shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, for he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt, when he struck down the Egyptians but spared our houses, and the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites went and did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. Now, you may have noticed something here that 12, 1 through about, I think it's like 20, it tells this whole story, right? And then 20 through 27 goes back and it it summarizes 1 through 20. So that's what it does. And that's kind of, that's a very um common technique in the bible and that is you take you give this long explanation and then you go back and you summarize it so 1 through 20 is the long explanation and then 21 through 27 is the summary of it and that i think that's very interesting because then they go back and they're able to make the point again so this section consists of a word from uh, of god to moses regarding the ritual Passover and the unleavened bread combined, because before uh as we we kind of think of those as two things that are one thing now, not so much the Jewish but as as Christians looking on, but it's not so these were two separate um uh, these were two separate experiences rituals in these in these times of old, and they weren't brought to be, together until this uh this is ritualized later on so to be followed by the event to come now notice that what what this particular scripture does is it sets up the liturgy before the event it sets up how we're going to be in this liturgy before the event actually happens and while these accounts probably have their roots in kind of separate sources like j and p the verses are now represented as uh, um, a newly liberated people will create practices and institutions that are in tune with their new status. That's very important. Why on earth would the redactors do this? Why would they couple this and put this here? Because the people coming out of slavery have lost their identity. And now they need a new identity. And what will that identity be? It will be an identity that is coupled with that they belong to God and that God, the Hebrew God, Yahweh, is their God. So this whole this whole enterprise, this ritual, is a way of identifying the people coming up out of Egypt as the people of God. And um, in the case of Passover, liturgy precedes the liberating event. Now, redactionally, the ritual is set in place before the event occurs, and we see the story and liturgy that are so intertwined that you really will not be able to understand the story without the liturgy, or the liturgy without the story. They both have are, have come to be for those of us who are the recipients of the redaction, and that's all of us after, you know, 60 A.D., that we don't understand this story without the Passover. The Passover is what explains what happened to us at the end. So here liturgy has not only shaped literature, but it actually shaped the very event in our understanding of it. So there's a well accepted um, understanding of the Passover rite, that it's rooted in an already existing nomadic rite of passage uh, pre-Israel when they were just random tribes that roamed uh, in Canaan. It's a yearly celebration of the abundance of spring and a ritual to ward off evil spirits. That's what it, it was at the very beginning. And while it is this rite that's repeatedly mentioned by Moses to Pharaoh, especially in chapter three, that one, the, the rite of spring is the one that's mentioned. Now it is ironically celebrated in Egypt. It's been brought into Egypt. And its meaning has been transformed and will be transformed in view of the changed circumstances. So they're using something that already existed and they're transforming it. Now, let me just make a, a redactional comment here myself. That's exactly what we did with the Lord's Supper. Exactly what we did. Jesus was seated at a Seder table who was practicing a Seder meal that had come to be that we would recognize after after in Jesus' lifetime. And as he was in that Seder meal and he lifted the bread and and the cup, which meant other things, The bread was the bread of suffering. The cup was the cup of Elijah and all this. He transformed what they had known for thousands of years into something new for a new identity for those who were following. Does that make sense? So then that makes more sense for us looking backwards because we understand now that that this is exactly what was happening to the Jews. Something that they understood. They understood these rites of spring. They understood that and so... So, so they, this is very familiar to them, but now it's being transformed into something that is uh, uh, associating and linking them into the salvation history of God. So it's uh, it's very meaningful that it's put in this way. And so, whatever the roots of the Passover are, it has now been drawn into the heart. Of the liberating event itself and represented as a God given ritual for a coming event and how that event uh, subsequently uh, is actualized. So at the same time, the meaning of Passover is not completely comprehended by Exodus events. For example, there is a, in the nomadic uh, rite, the blood has apotrapic, apotrapic uh, qualities, which means it's the blood itself that wards off evil spirits now, in this telling in the putting of the blood on the doorpost, this is no longer the case. The blood itself is not, has no magical qualities; it is simply a sign of god's promise so what what we 're trying to do, God is in this very even in this ritual, looking at it you're taking a people. Who uh, uh and in Egypt who idolized things that the Creator made rather than the Creator and so they so there were magical qualities in the river and in the tree and in the leaf and the flower and the sun and the moon and the stars. there were magical uh qualities within all of those. and what God is saying here is there are no magical qualities. Keep your eye on me. And this is simply a sign to remind you of what I'm doing. So we changed the blood, which was atropophic, meaning it was to ward off evil. We changed that and we integrate that. And God says, this is no longer to ward off evil. It never did ward off evil. I am the only one you need to be looking at. And that's very important. So the blood is not a mistake. It's not like because it was a bright color. But it has a deeper meaning because the blood is life force. It's the vitality. And so what God is doing, do you remember how we talked last week about how God deconstructed creation little by little, taking away everything that made us the creation that we knew in God's order? And now God is recreating by using creation itself, lifeblood, to bring new life to the Israelites. This is a very important concept. And it's important that this promise is associated with the sign, not the sign in and of itself. And the blood is a sign, it says in the scripture, for you, not for God. In fact, Aviva Zornberg, who's a a wonderful rabbi and theologian, she makes the comment that if you read the text with the the way it operates in the Hebrew, it's it's very clear that the mark of the blood was not on the outside but was on the inside of the house so that the people inside could look up at the blood and be reminded in their greatest moment of fear that God is true to God's promises. And that was part of her commentary. That Israel can rely on God being faithful to God's commitment to them It's a sign from a a sphere of creation that becomes a vehicle for Israel's redemption. And it's not irrelevant that the substance is is blood. The sun is not, the blood, the sign is not simply a marker, but it it is using creation, using what God has created to create new life. It's the life given that provides the life for Israel. Does this sound familiar at all? that it's life given that provides the salvation for the people of Israel, not simply the blood as a marker of protection. The blood of creation is shed so that Israel's blood might be spared. Sound familiar? But it has this power because of the word of God that proclaims its significance. So God uses creation to achieve redemption. God uses what God has created to achieve redemption and thereby redeeming all of creation. It's a story which is referred to in the request for an interpretation by the ritual of children, which is very uncommon in scriptures. You don't normally have them paying any attention to what a child says, but you see in here it says and when your children ask you So at the beginning of uh, a Seder, if any of you have ever been to it, the way the Seder is launched is a child says, why is this night so special? And then the response is from the the family, they then begin to tell the story of Exodus, and it comes straight out of this particular ritual. So it is um, this story, which is the Passover material in closing this text, is liturgy in which the proclaimed story is dramatized and reenacted, but it's more than that. It's more than that. Uh, It is Passover, which is the act of God. In and through that celebration of the Passover, God works salvation initially and continues working. So this is very important. Not only does God save the, uh, the Israelites, But God continues to save creation, continues to save us. God is always recreating. God is not passive. God is not past. God is is active now. And so this ritual, as seen by the, the, the Israelites, is not passive either. But every time that they experience this ritual, they believe, their understanding is, that it revitalizes them, that the presence of God is with them, that it's a sacrament a sacramental moment its a, for making the exodus redemption real and effective for both present and subsequent generations. Because you notice one of the things they said was that they kept harping on, I might say, okay, and then you give it to your the next generation and the next one, and you shall do this and keep these ordinances. And, I mean, it makes it so, you can't miss it. This is something we're going to keep doing, people. That's what is basically saying, and 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 every time we do it, we're going to be we're going to be connected in a mystery with God, and this comes down to, uh, for example, uh, the best way I can kind of explain that in in our in our Christian experience, is our sacrament of communion. So our sacrament came from the basic seder that came after 66 A.D., but one of the things that is so incredible is that um, so you have people who are from the Catholic tradition have transubstantiation. And so the the elements themselves become something other than they are. The mystery has entered the elements themselves. OK. And then you have over here on the other extreme, the maybe the more Baptist tradition, which says there's nothing about them. And nothing about the event, is just symbolic. It's important, but it's just symbolic. So where do you expect the Presbyterians to be? You're right. <laughs> right down the middle. That's right. So Presbyterians being Scotch, you know, and all this kind of stuff, we're like, well, we don't think it could be this. But it couldn't, it's not that. So maybe it's this, you know? And so we have more of a sense of, We don't think that the elements themselves are are changed because part of our um, value system is that any kind of element that you worship is idolatry. But we also don't think it's just symbols, that there is something specific, a mystery that occurs within the sacramental uh, enactment. That is a mystery that we don't understand. It's the presence of Christ with us in a way unlike in other times, in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. And that's one of the reasons why as Reformed people, we don't practice either of those privately. We don't have private baptisms and we don't have private communion services. So in some traditions, if you called and said, I'd like my my son baptized today, they'd say, come on down, and they would gather together, and they would do the baptism, and it would be fine. In our tradition, we'd say, come on Sunday morning, and we'll we'll have the whole congregation gather because we believe that it's sacramental, that there's an experience for the community in that. So it's not fiction. What, nothing really happens in the ritual. It's more than that. It's, it's, it's not that just symbolic. It's a, it's a salvific, meaning salvation uh, event. And it's entering into the reality of that event, and I'm meaning Passover, in such a way as to be changed to be the people of God. That's what the whole thing was about, so that they would be recognized and they would recognize themselves now. Remember, it's been a long, long time since they practiced their faith. Now, this is a re-identification, and not only for them, but for the generations who had never, ever even heard of any of this. So, uh, for the fir- and for the first time in this particular section, we notice in chapter, uh, since chapter 4, and now we're in chapter 12, it's the first time that people have bowed their heads and worshipped. First time that we've had a record of that. Their obedient acts of preparation immediately follow. So automatically, the way this story has been presented to us, automatically there's a twofold response, and that's worship and obedience. And those two things together prepare the way for them to be the people of God that God needs them to be as they uh, make their way. So now we come to Exodus 12, 29 through 36. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his officials and all the Egyptians. And there was a loud cry in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron in the night and said, Rise up. Go away from my people, both you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you said. Take your flocks and your herds as you said, and be gone, and bring a blessing on me too. The Egyptians urged the people to hasten their departure from the land, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls wrapped up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The Israelites had done as Moses told them. They had asked the Egyptians for jewelry of silver and gold and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked, and so they plundered the Egyptians. So as noted kind of in the placement of this plague, the way it's placed in the midst of a ritual consideration, it takes it out of the normal flow of story. In fact, it lifts it up because it's within this context of ritual out of time and space to mean something bigger and something more than just an event that happened. So this gives it kind of an impressionistic character in relation to actual events. So what you'll notice also is it's somewhat episodic. Did you notice that? It was this, and then this, and then this, and then this. And so they were little encapsulated stories. And it may be due to the composite nature of all the different storytellers bringing this into into, uh, one story that creates that episode. But it also enables the narrator quickly to view death and new life from different angles of vision. So you notice that the story is told in very spare, straightforward language. There is no literary embellishment. I mean, after all, this is, the, this is the very moment when when Moses finally gives in, when he finally surrenders, when God is victorious. And yet there is no moment of savoring or celebration. And so in a way, the text is speaking to us. And the text is saying that Israel, like God, voices no pleasure in the deaths of all of these people. One of the most dramatic moments of the Passover Seder, uh, even modern day, comes with the recitation of the 10 plagues. When they're reciting the 10 plagues, what they do is they drop a drop of wine for each plague. And this is what they say when they're dropping that wine. As we recite each plague, we spill a drop of wine in recognition that the process of our liberation caused suffering to the Egyptian people. So if, if you recall, what I tried to say before was that this is this whole experience, what God wanted to come out of that. And every time they was to um, uh, for them to remember not just the suffering their own suffering, but to be reminded of the suffering of all of those around them. And because it's salvation history and it's repeated over and over again, so that when they reenact the Seder, even today, for them to remind themselves of the suffering of the world. So it's a oneness with those who suffer instead of a celebration that you're now out of the jam, so to speak so attention here is given to two major aspects of the narrative is a story. life and and death and it, so it happened in the middle of the night and when all of the world was dark and there, and it says not one single household apart from the, those with the blood on the lintels not one single household was spared not one and not one barnyard escaped. Not a single one. It was done while the people were asleep, and the victims were the firstborn, male and female, human and creature. So the text describes the the killing entity. Like you've seen, we've we've uh, mentioned before Charlton Heston and the plagues, and if you remember that at all, there's this big kind of green Ghostbusters type thing, you know, uh, floating across, you know, the, the city and all this, but the scripture is very different how it describes what's happening. It describes it as, as a non-divine agent, if you will, meaning it's not, you know, it's not God floating across the city and killing the firstborn. It's described with these words, nega, meaning plague, Deber, pestilence, or Mashi, the destroyer, pestilence, destruction. So whatever happened, happened not in a such a supernatural event as something floating over the house, but the way the scriptures describe it, it happened in the way of the plagues. The killing of the firstborn, uh, most uh, commentators, and the Mishnah which is the, all that body of commentator by the um, uh, rabbis and scholars all across the centuries, all agree that it's, it's really important that we understand that this plague, although it's different because it's set in ritual, is much like the other plagues. So it's not to be taken literally every single person, but it's to be taken that the amount that was needed is, is, um, is a part of this and the others will remain untouched. As with the other plagues, the emphasis is on all, and it's intended to portray an aspect of a creation that's gone berserk. Remember the creation, all the gnats, all the flies, all the lice, all the water, you know, everything involved in this, in the plagues. And so in this, it's it's much of the same kind of language. Everything is involved in these plagues, said, and then, but there's another way to um, uh, to understand that the moral order had boomeranged, and we understand that just from the other two, other uh, nine plagues, in such a way that the nature, the order of nature, which includes epidemics, has become something that it ought not to be, that everything is reversed. Now the the animals and the creature world have dominion. And now that's being turned around and recreated. And as the Israelites take their livestock and their animals out of this place, they are now once more re-instituted uh, as being in charge of that part of creation. But there's another way of looking at it also. There's language that came about in chapter four, way back in chapter four, when Moses was being called and, and God was giving Moses language, God said, I, I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. This is uh, uh, God telling Moses what should say. So in, in chapter 4, God is telling Moses to say this to Pharaoh. Let my son go, meaning uh, Israel, that he may serve me, but you refuse to let him go. Now I will kill your firstborn son. So this is uh, what in, some interpreters say that the killing of the Egyptian firstborn is understood as a measure for measure, a measure for killing all of the the, the male children uh, of, um, of when Moses was uh, in that narrative story when Moses was born. So making the punishment fit the crime. So while still in the dark, in the immediate aftermath of the death of his firstborn, Pharaoh summons Moses. And Aaron. Now, do you remember what Pharaoh said to Moses the last time they got together? You remember? Exactly. He says, I don't want to ever see you again. And what did Moses say back to him? You won't. That's right. And so they parted company. Now, this is the first time they've been called back together. It's a much different story. Because in this story, it's important to see what does Pharaoh ask for from Moses? A blessing. blessing. Because what what this indicates to us in the scripture is that Pharaoh, at least in this moment, is broken. And that Pharaoh has some inkling that this God is something different than himself. That this God is a God at another level than what he is experiencing himself as God, so and also uh, it, it's kind of interesting if you look back at the way the it's written. Now the Egyptians are talked about as a whole people; they're no longer individuals. It's the Egyptians and of all the Egyptians and all this, and that's what it says. And that's it, it's very striking, as if one body one body thinking they all got together, you know, or something and said, let's get rid of the Egyptians because we're going to be next. But there's also that understanding that uh, as they plundered that place and as they left that place, remember it was also so that their hearts might be softened towards the Egyptians as they look back on this. So their Israelites uh, rushed to leave and just as the ritual demanded, they leave with unleavened bread and their sandals are on their feet and they're packed and ready to go and um, with all the goods that the Egyptians had given them. So now for our final section. Okay. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. A mixed crowd also went up with them and livestock in great numbers, both flocks and herds. They baked unleavened, unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. It was not leavened, because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the Israelites had lived in Egypt was 430 years. Four plus three equals seven, right? So, at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the companies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. That was for the Lord a night of vigil, to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That same night is a vigil to be kept for the Lord by all the Israelites throughout their generations. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance for the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but any slave who has been purchased may eat of it after he has been circumcised. No bound or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the animal outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. The whole congregation of Israel shall celebrate it. If an alien who resides with you wants to celebrate the Passover to the Lord, all his males shall be circumcised. Then he may draw near to celebrate it. He shall be regarded as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the alien who reside among you." All the Israelites did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. That very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, company by company. Wow. Look where they've come from. And look, you know, this is, it's just an extremely significant moment right now, as they have become from being a scattered people being a nomadic tribe, to being the uh, a, a small band of people, to being the people that fill this place. And now they are leaving as a people identified with a ritual and with an identifying mark also, that circumcision mark. That was one of the first rituals that was introduced. So uh, verses 37 through 51 are kind of a composite from various sources, and they kind of lift up a variety of concerns. It's as though the storyteller uh, who's, through whose hands this material passed, just felt the need that they had to make a few comments about it and make it uh, understand, us understand how important this moment was in in the in the history and the evolution of these people. And the effect is that it provides a number of transitions into the next section because now, depending on who you talk to, we leave the plagues and we go starting with the the Red Sea we go into the wilderness narration. Some people will believe that the Red Sea is part of the plague series, and others say, no, some say it ended there, and others say, no, it started there. So, you know, go figure. Um, where, whatever, th- it's gonna happen. So, anyway. Now, what? one thing I wanna leave you with, and this is a very important piece, and that is, did you notice two words that was in this reading? And the two words were mixed crowd. Did you notice that? It wasn't just the Israelites who left Egypt. It was the uh, the families that they had created outside of their families. It was other people. Because in this narrative, all we've really heard about are the Israelites and the Egyptians, but there were many people, many different places. The Egyptians were, you know, the big cheese in that area. So they had slaves from all over and they had people from all over, and these people chose to leave with them at this uh, uh, opportunity for freedom, and they're welcomed. They they can come along, but there's a caveat, and that is if you want to, you can come along with us. But if you want to join the congregation, then you have to be circumcised, and if you want to uh, partake in the Passover, you have to be circumcised. So that's a very important thing. That helps you to understand why in the New Testament it became such a big deal that the Jews were saying to the new Christians, you have to be circumcised. Doesn't it give you just a little bit more sympathy for that? That And, and Paul kept saying, no, we can't go backwards, people. Anyway, that's a whole other story. So Israel's God is one who is about to redeem what this says is, God is not just a God for the Hebrew people. God is not just a God for the Jews. That at this moment, it became about the redemption of all of creation and all people, not just about the Jews. And it continues on and on and on, and so it goes. So we have come to the end of such an incredible, significant um, groundwork that lays the groundwork for everything that's going to happen from here on if you can believe it, it's really quite remarkable. Anyway, thank you for your attention. I hope you have a great time in your group. group. And Mr. Jack Baca will be making an appearance next week and he just can't wait and I'm jealous, but he's gonna be here and, and I know you're gonna enjoy him. So thank you so much.